question, please? My name is Tad Mitsui, and uh, welcome to SACPA. Today is a very interesting session because Paul Basse, our speaker, is somebody quite well known in the field. I first heard of his name in Japan before I came to Lethbridge. My sister approached me and said, do you know Paul Vasse? He does monkeys in Japan. Monkeys in Japan. Anyhow, you may learn about the monkeys in Paul later, but today's subject is very timely because gender identity is quite a bit of a controversy, especially in school board. And Paul will give us different ideas about gender, gender identity. And he does research all over the world, Japan, Samoa, Mexico, etc. So he'll speak about third gender, which should interest you. And uh, we have half an hour's presentation, half an hour for lunch, another half an hour for question and answer. But before I ask Paul to come up, make sure you put $12 in the basket. Secondly, turn off your cell phone. Thank you very much. Paul? Okay, well, <clears throat> thank you very much for uh, inviting me here today to speak. And I'm, uh, I'm gonna just start by saying that in, in this culture, we're, we're used to thinking about gender, or, or more specifically, gendered categories of personhood in a dichotomous or binary manner. So we think about individuals as being either men or women. And you know, there's, there's no shame in that. You know, there's this mania now about gender diversity that's sweeping the West. And uh, there's, there, there's the way we, we think about gender, the way we think about gendered categories of personhood, it's just, it's one, it's just one culture cultural way of doing it and what which is which is perfectly fine <laughs> but there are other ways that uh, gender and specifically gendered categories of personhood are are sort of conceptualized in different cultures and um, in many cultures outside of the West there are individuals that are recognized as existing beyond the gender binary of man or woman that, that are really so familiar to us. And I work with t in, in two such cultures. I spend a significant part of my life in both of these cultures. And I'm gonna be describing both of them to you today. So first of all, um, one of the cultures I work in is Samoa. And I've, I've worked here for the past, um, the past 14 years. And the Samoan uh, chain of islands, it's divided into two political units. There's the American territory of American Samoa, and then there's the independent uh, country Samoa, which uh, obtained independence uh, from New Zealand, I think it was in 1962. And as you can see, the, the independent country of Samoa consists primarily of these two main islands, Savai and Upalu. And Upalu is where the, it's the smaller of the two big islands, and it's where the capital, Apia, exists. And that picture over there is just a picture of um, of one of the areas in Upalu, that's uh, what it looks like. So it's an it's a, it's a independent 
nation in the South Pacific, and it's, it's Polynesian. It's in the Polynesian part of the South Pacific. And the other place I work <coughs> is in uh, an area of Oaxaca, an area in the state of Oaxaca. So you can see up in the corner there, there's a map of Mexico. And in the, the southern portion, you'll find the uh, state of Oaxaca. And I specifically work in a particular area of Oaxaca called the ISMO region, which is over on the other side of the screen there, ISTMO. And it consists of, uh, uh, of two districts, Tehuantepec and Uchitan. And uh, the largest uh, city or settlement in the area is called Uchitan de Zaragoza. And I spend, uh, the, the picture up in the corner here is the square in the center of Uchitan de Zaragoza. And I spend, also spend a significant part of my life uh, in that location working. So the, the reason that I, I go to these places is because these particular cultures, the Samoans and the Ismo Zapotec, they do not conceptualize gendered categories of personhood the way we do in this culture. They think of gender as uh, existing in, an, in a non-binary way. So there are individuals in these cultures that are, they're not recognized as men and they're not recognized as women. So if you came with me to the, the, these cultures and you pointed to one of these individuals and you said, is that a man or a woman? Probably one of the locals would laugh and say, it's not a man or a woman, it's some alternate gender category. And so what, I, what I'm talking about here, uh, these individuals are referred to as fafafine in Samoa and they're referred to as mushe in the Ismo Zapotec. So, <clears throat> who are these people? <laughs> they, they share several features in, that tie them together, despite the fact that these two cultures are very distant and, and very uh, separate from each other. So, the, one, of, one of the things that, that characterizes these third gender individuals is that they're biological males. So, you'll hear throughout the presentation, I'll refer to them as third gender males. Uh, another thing that characterizes these third gender males is they're, they're highly feminine. And from our cultural perspective, we would, we would probably refer to them as transgender, although that's not a word that exists in those cultures. Um, but, but for the purposes of you know, facilitating discussion here, I'll talk about them as being feminine uh, biological males or transgender biological males. And the, the other thing you need to know about them is that in adulthood, they're same-sex attracted. So uh, we, in the literature, we refer to, we refer to this as androphilic. Their androphilia refers to sexual attraction to adult males, and mushe and fafafine are androphilic males. Okay, now something else I'd like you to know about the mushe and the fafafine is that uh, they're recognized as being members of these third gender categories of personhood in childhood. So these are, <coughs> this is a Musha child, uh, and in the other picture there you see a Fafafine teacher, and two of her uh, students, I mean she has more students than this, but two of, two of the students in the class were Fafafine students uh, that are standing there with her. Um, so, the individuals are recognized as fafafine or mushi in childhood, and they're, they're recognized on the basis of their gender atypical behavior, meaning they don't behave like typical boys. They, they behave in a girlish way. So, for example, they might prefer 
uh, certain uh, female typical activities like uh, staying in the house with their sisters and, and their mother and cleaning the house and washing dishes, um, which is not something in these cultures that, that boys would typically do. They might simultaneously be averse to male typical activities. So they might, for example, uh, not like to engage in rough and tumble play. They might not like to engage in, for example, in Samoa rugby. Or they might, want to they might not want to do male typical activities, such as on Sunday, men are responsible for building a stone oven in the ground that the food is cooked in. They don't, they don't want to do that. They want to stay in the house with their mothers and sisters and do female typical things. Um, so it's, it's really critical to note here that um, children aren't made into fapapine or mushe. Parents and other family members and peers and other community members simply recognize uh, that some male children are fapafine and they don't behave like, or, or, or that they're feminine or they, and they don't behave like typical little boys. And within these particular cultural frameworks, Samoa and the Ismo Zapotec, feminine little male children are identified as being mushe or fapafine. They're not identified as being typical boys. Um, so, I think a key point to emphasize here is that uh, long before adulthood, these individuals are recognized as being members of these third gender categories, which means long before they have any sexual feelings at all. I mean, they're kids, right? They're, they don't have sexual feelings in the way an adult does. Uh, they're recognized as being members of this third gender. So it's really incorrect to assume that these third gender males are a direct equivalent of you know, what would be the closest thing in our culture of gay, gay men in, 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 in Western societies. Um, because as I said, you know, they're recognized in childhood long before there's any expression of sexual attraction or uh, sexual, uh, sexual behavior. The other thing I, I'd like you to, to know about Fapapine and Mushe is that they don't, unlike gay guys, they don't engage in sexual interactions with each other. They <coughs> engage in sexual interactions with masculine men. Now, <coughs> some people find this surprising, but if you think about androphilic males, males that are sexually attracted to other adult males, what, what they're turned on by is masculinity. They're not turned on by femininity. So it's, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise that Fafafine and Mushe who are androphilic males, that they're not sexually interested in feminine males. They're sexually interested in masculinity, and so they seek out individuals that are masculine men. Um, in Samoa, these men, they're not marked as being any different from men who only sleep with women. There's no special category for them. There's no special name for them. They're just considered men. And most of the men in Samoa who have sex with fafafine, they, they also have sex with women. And our research on these men indicates that in terms of subjective and objective measures of sexual orientation, these guys are, it looks like they're exhibiting bisexual patterns of attraction. Um, in the Ismo Zapotec, these, interestingly enough, these men are marked as being different 
from men who don't sleep with Fafafine, or excuse me, men who don't sleep with Mushe. There's a special name for the, the men in the Ismo Zapotec that sleep with Mushe, and they're called Meate. So they're considered to be a special kind of, of man, but a man nonetheless. Um, I'd also like you to know that I'd also like you to know that Fafafine and Mushe, they enjoy a relatively high degree of social acceptance in their cultures compared to what transgender males would experience in this culture. Um, they're, they're sort of regarded as being un, unremarkable. They're highly visible. Uh, they're, uh, for example, the, the, the Fafafine, um, in Samoa, they're found in all strata of society, from stay-at-home caregivers to CEOs of organizations. Y if you had some business with the prime minister of the country, uh, it, it wouldn't be a surprise if one of the secretaries working in the office was a fafafine. And in fact, the prime minister of Samoa is the, the, the patron of the fafafine association. So it gives you some idea of how relatively accepted and integrated they are in the society. Um, in Uchitan, um, probably the best example of the degree to which Mushe are um, accepted, or, or you might even say celebrated as community members, comes from uh, a four-day festival, uh, which is held every November, and it's called the Festival of the Authentic Intrepid Seekers of Danger. Which is, which is this four-day festival that's, that, that honors the Mushe. It starts with a parade through the, the town, which the Catholic priests in the town bless and participate in. There's more than 10,000 community members and visitors that attend the uh, subsequent, um, uh, you know, really, really extravagant dances uh, that take place over this four-day period. So I'm not saying their life is perfect. But as I always say to my students, raise your hand if your life is perfect. Raise your hand if you've never been the subject of discrimination. No, it characterizes everyone's life. Nobody's life is perfect. But relative to the situation in Canada, it, they're much, much, much more integrated into the community and much more accepted and just taken as kind of just commonplace members of the community, the way you think about each other as men and women. You can see uh, a Fafafine sitting outside the church there. Um, no problem whatsoever. Oftentimes they're the, the minister's favorite uh, parishioners because they clean the church, they decorate the church, they, they f will bring food to the minister. Okay, now <clears throat> the next thing I'd like to note is that there are, there are no special pronouns that are used to refer to Fafafine or, or Mushe individuals. So <clears throat> I'd argue that you know there's this kind of huge debate going on right now in Western society about you know which pronouns are we supposed to use and people demanding that special pronouns are used. I I, I would argue that acceptance of transgendered individuals, if we take uh, Uchitan and Samoa as being, in, in my personal opinion, two of the places in the world where if you were transgendered, these would be the best places to live. Um, I would say if, if those are our models of the best we have to offer in terms of acceptance, then acceptance is not contingent on the existence of specialized pronouns such as Z and Zim and Zer. 
Um, and it's, it's really important to note here, though, that there are many, many cultures worldwide that recognize more than two gendered categories of personhood, like fafafine and mushe, and they have special words for those third genders that exist beyond the man-woman binary. But I know of no culture anywhere in the world, uh, including those that recognize more than two genders, that have special pronouns to refer to third gender individuals. Such individuals are simply addressed using a combination of male and, and, and female pronouns. Some people flip, they just flip back and forth. He, she, he, she, he, she. And the individuals in question, the Fafafine and Mushe, they're not distressed by this. They don't feel insulted by the situation at all. Just uh, as a rule of thumb, what I do, what I do for these two individuals is I just, they look feminine to me, so I'd use feminine pronouns. That's, that's how I would operate. Which is not surprising because I've been socialized in a culture which recognizes gender as being binary. Now, I want you to understand that how male androphilia, so male same-sex attraction to adult males, is manifested, it varies depending on the cultural context in which you find yourself. So, um, in Western cultures, this is what we're used to seeing. We're used to seeing masculine male androphiles, or you know, to use the more current lingo, cisgender male androphiles. So these individuals are um, relatively masculine and they identify as boys and men. They identify with the gender that was assigned to them at birth. This is what's typical in the West. This is what you're most familiar with in this room. But of course, based on everything I've told you, sorry, the computer, let's see, there we go. Uh, based on everything I've told you, you're now aware that there are these other places where there are feminine or transgender male androphiles. And these individuals uh, behave in a highly feminine way, sometimes to the point where if I brought you to Samoa, if I brought you to the Isthmo region of, of, of Uchitan, they might be so highly feminine that you wouldn't recognize them as being, a, you'd recognize them as being a woman. So there's a whole range of femininity. <clears throat> they also um, often, do, as, as, as you know by now, they often don't uh, identify as being men or women, these transgender male androphiles. They, they identify as some third gender, which was not assigned to them at birth. No one assigns at birth an individual to be Mushe or Fafafine. That's revealed through a child's gender atypical behavior, which then cues everyone around them that, oh, this isn't a typical boy. This is a mushe. This is a fafafine. So we have both of these individuals are male androphiles. The parts of their brain that regulate sexual partner preference are the same, despite the fact that they look so different from each other. There's lots of traits that they share in common, and I just want to quickly walk you through what some of these are. Um, so uh, these are things like um, they both exhibit elevated levels of childhood gender atypicality. They both exhibit elevated levels of childhood separation anxiety. They both exhibit elevated cross-sex wishes in childhood, wishing or dreaming or hoping to be a girl. They also exhibit a whole range of biodemographic correlates that they share. 
They both have a greater number of older brothers compared to straight men. They both have larger families compared to straight men. They both have more androphilic male relatives just like them. Uh, they exist at similar population prevalence rates across different cultures. About two to three percent of males, no matter where you go in the world, are going to be androphilic. They both lack reproduction. Uh, they also have certain personality characteristics that they share in adulthood. They prefer female typical occupations if given a choice, regardless of which form, the cisgender or the transgender form. And they lack an interest in modifying their genitals and their secondary sexual characteristics. So Fafafine and Mushe, they're, they're not interested in, in undergoing sex reassignment surgery for the, the vast majority of them, nor are they interested in modifying their bodies through hormones. Um, and even those that do, even, even a Mushe or a Fafafine that got sex reassignment surgery would not be considered a woman in those cultures, ever they would be considered a mushe or a fafafine. Once a mushe or a fafafine, always a mushe or a fafafine. It doesn't matter what you do to your genitals or your body through uh, external hormones. So all of, you know, all of these characteristics that are shared in common between the two, two types of male androphiles, what this tells us is that the two forms of male androphilia are cultural variants of the same biological trait. So the biological trait is the same. They're, they're, the, the part of their brain that regulates sexual partner preference is wired the same. It's just if it develops in one culture, it develops in a cisgendered form. If it develops in the other culture, it develops in a transgendered form. Biologically the same, culturally different. So uh, the, the manner in which male androphilia is expressed has really important implications for third gender males and their families. And Fafafine, for example, they exhibit elevated avuncular tendencies, elevated uncle-like tendencies. So if you ask them how willing would you be to take care of nieces and nephews, they always answer at an elevated level compared to heterosexual men. But what's really interesting is if you, this same kind of research on avuncular uncle-like tendencies, it's been done in um, in, in, in other cultures, uh, places like the United States, exact same studies have been done, and in the UK, and in Canada, and in Spain, and France, and Japan. And what we find is that when you ask androphilic males in those cultures how willing they would be to take care of nieces and nephews, you find no difference from heterosexual men. There is no male sexual orientation difference. So the male sexual orientation difference exists in Samoa, where you have these third gender androphilic males, these transgender androphilic males, but it doesn't exist in all of these other places where male androphilia is manifested in the transgender, or in the cisgender, the gay form. So then, then the question becomes, well, why, why, is, why are the fafafine expressing elevated uncle-like tendencies, a willingness to take care of nieces and nephews pay their medical bills, pay their school bills, babysit them, help them with their homework. Um, but you don't see it in these cultures where you have gay guys who are not third genders. Maybe the expression of elevated avuncularity, elevated uncle-like tendencies is contingent 
on which form of male androphilia is expressed. If the cisgender form is expressed, you don't get elevated avuncularity. If the transgender form is expressed, you do. So, but, but of course there's an alternate interpretation. Maybe Samoa is just a unique culture. Maybe it's a strange culture where male androphiles exhibit elevated avuncularity and uh, that's not characteristic of anywhere else in the world. So really to test this idea, you need to go to another culture where third gender males are present, these transgender male androphiles, and that's distant from Samoa. It's not culturally related. And if you go to a culture like this, which is what motivated my work in the Ismo Zapotec region of Oaxaca, you can see Dumouche do this other exemplar of transgender male androphiles exhibit elevated avuncularity like the Fafafine. And I can tell you this, <coughs> uh, our, our, our data indicate that this is indeed the case, that Mouche exhibit elevated willingness to help their nieces and nephews than straight men. Um, and the difference, the, 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 the patterns are, are comparable to, to what we see in Samoa. So, um, so we have what looks like a pattern of elevated pro-social behavior directed towards the family that's contingent on the manner in which male androphilia is expressed. And in order to get that elevated pro-social behavior, you have to have the feminine or the transgender form that's expressed, not the masculine or cisgender or gay form. So our, our work in, in Samoa uh, indicates that self-reported femininity, so you ask people how feminine do you think that you are, it, it correlates with avuncularity, levels of, of how, how avuncular they think they are in adulthood. So there's this relationship between male femininity and avuncularity in Samoa. And our work in Canada indicates that this is also the case. Even though the average gay guy in Canada isn't more avuncular than the average straight guy, our research shows that even in Canada, if you're an androphilic male, the more feminine you report you are, the more likely you are to be avuncular. So there's something going on between male femininity and willingness to help take care of nieces and nephews. So if we go back to childhood for a second, I can tell you that in all three of these cultures, Samoa, the Ismo Zapotec, and in Canada, pre-androphilic male children exhibit elevated levels of, uh, elevated levels of uh, feminine behavior. This is one of the strongest relationships that's been uh, found cross-culturally. If, you're, if you grow up to be androphilic, you were more than likely uh, exhibiting elevated levels of feminine behavior as a child. So in all three of these cultures, we have children that are biological males and they're feminine. And I just told you in the previous slide that there seems to be this relationship between femininity and elevated pro-social behavior, elevated concern for the well-being of the family. And our research in all three cultures shows that these pre-androphilic male children exhibit elevated uh, altruistic tendencies towards their kin. So they're more worried about the well-being of mom and dad. They're more worried about the well-being of their, 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 their 
brothers and sisters. Now, so in all three of these cultures, pre-androphilic boys are feminine, highly feminine compared to pre-straight boys. But what happens in Canada? What happens in Canada is that androphilic males have to, they're required culturally to masculinize. And as they masculinize, these tendencies dissipate. These pro-social tendencies that are directed towards the family dissipate to levels that are comparable to gynophilic males, or that's just another word for straight men. Okay? So the masculinization that's required in this culture for gay guys results in a dampening down of these pro-social tendencies. But in Samoa and among the Ismo Zapotec, of course, this isn't required. These feminine boys, feminine mushe, feminine fafafine children, they're not required to defeminize, they're not required to masculinize, and so they become feminine adult males. And these elevated pro-social tendencies persist in the form of elevated avuncularity, for example. So just in conclusion, I'd like to say that I've tried to show you that the manner in which male androphilia is expressed has really important implications for the expression of pro-social behavior. The pro-social behavior I've talked about is elevated uncle-like behavior. And um, feminine and transgender androphilic males my research shows they have demonstrable pro-social value for, for their families. Uh, in cultures where androphilic males are required to defeminize, elevated avuncularity, this pro-social behavior, it's not, ex it's not expressed. Um, and the final thing I'd like to say is that the binary reality in which you are socialized into, it's not, it's not absolute in some universal sense. Um, it's just one way of doing gender. It's, it's a totally acceptable way of doing gender. I'm not here to, to shame Western society. Uh, it's it, but it's just one way. When you, and and we, we can see it's only one way when we look at things in a cross-cultural perspective. It's just one model of reality, how you can categorize people and create gender categories of personhood. And what Samoa and the Ismo Zapotec cultures teach us is that there are other possibilities there's other ways of thinking about gender diversity beyond the Western binary. And I think it's useful to at least understand that those other possibilities are, are, are out there. So I just want to close by thanking all of my students that help with this work. And I want to thank my, my research assistants. And I want to thank all of these different agencies that fund my work and allow me to do what it is that I do. And if you have questions, I guess we eat lunch now and then we, then you ask questions. So thank you very much.